it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like Sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm your co-host, Andrew Menzel. Joining me this week is Paul Dennett. Paul, you've come back. I'm back. I'm back and happy, happy to be here as always. Now, in today's episode, we're going to wrap up the Women's World Cup action that's taken place since our last show. We've got the cricket headlines, and then we're going to bring it home with Can't Let It Go. But, Paul, let's get straight into the cricket news and the Women's World Cup action. Australia has escaped the fury of what would have happened if they missed out on the semifinals and they beat New Zealand to make the semifinals of the World Cup. Big win for Australia at Junction Oval. Yeah, and a really good game of cricket to watch. I felt the whole way through that Australia were just ahead and it never felt like there was going to be an upset, but it always felt like one good over for New Zealand and one bad over for Australia and suddenly we'd be in the territory that a real upset was on the cards. But they kind of kept New Zealand just at bay the whole way. Uh, and in the end, that's kind of how it proved. In that final over, if New Zealand had been able to get Katie Martin a little bit more on strike, then it could have got really interesting. It was just so good that Australia were able to scrape through. I mean, if they'd missed out on the semi-finals, it would have been a complete disaster for the tournament. Yeah, I do feel sorry for New Zealand because I think that if uh, you know the semi-finalists are going to include South Africa, if tomorrow New Zealand were playing South Africa, New Zealand would start as warm favourites, I think. So, you know, South Africa deserved to be there. They've won through and everything else, but I, I have some sympathy for the Kiwis. Now, Australia have suffered a big loss, though, heading into the semi-finals. Elise Perry has been ruled out for the rest of the tournament. I think that although it's a big blow, 
she was clearly hampered by that the injuries, especially you could tell she just wasn't herself against New Zealand. So I think we've got enough star power to still win the tournament without her, but obviously it's a big loss. Yeah, it is. And I mean, even in this game, her uh, contribution was telling. You know, the, the runs that she scored at the end probably made the difference between Australia winning and losing. And it, it is a great pity that for, for many years, most Australian casual sports fans could name only one uh, female cricketer and was Elise Perry. Uh, and for her to not get to play at the business end of the biggest tournament um, that she could potentially ever play in is, um, must be heartbreaking for her and you know, got, got, got great sympathy for her. I've heard her teammates um, talk about how her spirits have actually been pretty high um, since the injury, although she's obviously shattered. She's been really focused on uh, what she can do to help the team win from here off the field and what sort of sh- support she can be to the players, even though she's not playing. And when you look at the amount of experience she's had at international level, she would be um, able to support the players off the field. Now, the other thing is, it was a strange fixturing for this World Cup, and we didn't actually flag it when the fixtures came out, but they played the final group game for Australia against New Zealand that was a must-win game at 3pm on a Monday afternoon at Junction Oval in Melbourne, which was sold out, but it was sold out with 3,000 people. I mean, it's had a very small capacity for the day. I thought it was very strange fixturing to have the host nation play effectively a quarterfinal, three o'clock in the afternoon when not many people can watch it. I think it's ridiculous. I do not understand why they didn't say before the tournament, it's in everyone's interests, that Australia's games are all played outside of working hours, let alone... You know, three o'clock on a Monday afternoon and at Junction Oval, as you said, and it wasn't even on Channel 9, it was on Gem. Look, there's, there's precedence. In the 2015 World Cup, the Men's 50 Over World Cup, they said for the quarterfinals, quarterfinals, if Australia make it, their game's in Adelaide. If New Zealand make it, their game's in Wellington. So they kind of, they didn't have a pure draw. They put some things in place right from the start in their own self-interest. So they've set the precedent. They could have done it here and they should have done it here. And they should have had it at the Adelaide Oval and they should have had months of campaigns in Adelaide saying, let's see if we can beat Melbourne. Let's see if we can get 50,000 and throw, that, throw down the gauntlet to them. And I, I think they would have gone, they would have got a really massive crowd at the Adelaide Oval. Should have been on Channel 9. It should have been at 3pm on Sunday, not 3pm on Monday. Yeah, I'm not so concerned with the venue, although I think that was an oversight. I think the timing was quite a a big mistake Mm. because even from a long way out, you would think you would want the host nation to be playing most of their – well, all their games in prime time. Yeah, absolutely. uh, Yeah, where people can watch it. So a bit disappointed with that fixturing. And I I got a lot of messages from fans of the podcast who got home – on Monday, expecting to watch the game after work, mm. and they hadn't looked, and uh, the game was over. Yeah, bizarre, absolutely bizarre. So Australia and India go through from their group. England and South Africa go, th- go through from the other group. As we record this, the the final group game of the England-South Africa group is not complete, so um, we're not exactly sure whether they're going to finish one or two, so we're not sure who Australia is going to play in the semi-finals? I would suggest, though, that England would be the much harder matchup for Australia. Yeah, and if it turns out that Australia don't end up having to play England, it will be paradoxical, if that's the right word, that uh, ironic maybe is a better word. Uh, that I'm Aust- not smart enough to correct you. <laughs> I'm not smart enough to get the words right in the first place. Um, it would be strange that Australia, having lost to India may well end up turning out to be the best thing for them. Again, not to show disrespect to South Africa, but that's going to be a much easier, um, relatively speaking, game than if they had to play England. 
There is one issue bubbling around these World Cup semi-finals. So they're scheduled for Thursday afternoon and evening in Sydney. The forecast is not great. I'm not saying that they'll get rained out because we've seen recently with the Big Bash final. Now, oh, sorry to interrupt, listeners. We're just getting a call from the great cricket journalist, Gideon Hay. All right, so Gideon, I want to start off with um, something that Alistair Nicholson, the head of the ACA, said to Jared Waitley on the radio today. He said that he thinks David Warner should at least be eligible for leadership roles in Australian cricket. And he gave the example that David Warner can't even captain a big bash team. Uh, Mm. do, Do you think this is a something that needs to be looked at by CA? It's a strange circumstance, isn't it, where um, where a player is given a, a lifetime sentence with no possibility of rehabilitation, no consideration taken of, of good behaviour and, um, and no possibility of remission. Um, that is an extraordinary sentence to be levied on anyone. been lots of players who we thought should captain Australia who didn't, but they weren't the subject of, uh, of lifetime sentences. And, of course, he has been given captaincy roles elsewhere. He's the captain of Sunrisers Hyderabad. He impresses everyone at that franchise with his dedication to, uh, to assimilating a, um, a, uh, a diverse dressing room. And that's a test, I think, of, uh, of, of any international cricketer. So it, um, it's, it's, an, it's an open question. The, the question for CA would be how they could sell it. Um, I think... There's no obvious demand from anyone in the public that the sentence be relaxed on uh, on David Warner. And there was a general kind of public contentment with the duration of the sentences that the players previously served. So if, if CA was to change their minds, uh, they would have to come up with a compelling rationale. It seems a strange one that he was rubbed out from all Big Bash franchises as captain when you think about how many sort of older players have stuck around in the Big Bash and David Warner would be one of those players you'd want to play to 40 if possible? Well, there's been some pretty strange sentences passed on uh, on Australian players in the last season generally, I think, that the sentence that was passed on Emily Smith for the very minor trivial transgression of the of the anti-corruption code, which essentially rubbed her out for a, for a season and potentially ended her career and did not even allow her to play club cricket, that to me was um, was a, a sledgehammer being used to, uh, to to crack a nut. So I think the general quality of, of CA justice has come in under scrutiny in the last few months. Yeah, it's, it's all seemed a bit topsy-turvy when you consider the sort of sentences handed down for the homophobic slurs and then an Instagram post says you rubbed out of the game. Yeah. I think they need to sort of look at that with a, a fine tooth comb in the off-season. Yeah, precisely. Uh, Gideon, um, looking, talking about David Warner, and he's been quite restrained or very restrained in everything he said in the press since that initial interview about the, the South African uh, ball tampering situation, you're, you're very knowledgeable about what occurred there. Fast-forwarding one day to when he's retired and if he's going to <clears> announce <throat> that he's going to release a tell-all book, will there be some players or officials who are there at the time who'll be, who'll be anxious and nervous, do you think? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think that uh, if he hadn't been successfully reassimilated into the Australian side, um, we might have heard more from from Warner, but I think he's also, like most pragmatic sportsmen, he's taken the attitude that uh, he'll he'll take it one day at a time. 
uh, and that, you know, you never know when you, when, when your career is about to take a different course. <laughs> if anyone knows that now, uh, it's, it's David Warner. Um, I've just watched the, um, the, uh, the test, the, uh, Amazon, uh, original series, the eight part documentary series about the Australian team over the, uh, years since, um, is it good? In Sandpaper. Oh, it's excellent. It's really very good. Um, I have one or two reservations about it, but in general, I think it will hold the interest of uh, of anyone who's got any kind of feeling for cricket at all, whether or not they're fans of the Australian side or not. Uh, the degree of access that the filmmakers have been afforded is, is, is remarkable. And I think, once again, Warner emerges pretty well from that. Uh, he looks like a player who's well and truly got his the, the team's interests at heart. He doesn't come across as a particularly um, uh, uh, outrageous individual. He comes across as, a, as, as the quintessential team man. Uh, it'll be very hard to fault his um, his behaviour on the uh, on the basis of what wow. you see in this series. Uh, that's good to hear. Um, why do you think that the South African crowds have been so nice to, to, to Warner and Smith? Uh, have they been noticeably nice? They just haven't been outrageously hostile. Yeah, I think, well, yeah. Why haven't they been outrageously hostile? Well, frankly, because they got they got a lot of things to worry about. South African crowds, more things even than David Warner. I think that um, South African cricket is is in a bit of a state of confusion, and uh, and there are, there are more things on in, on heaven and earth than uh, than bagging David Warner, as tempting as that might be. <laughs> Easy target, Gideon. Um, I don't know if you've been following, but Michael Clark has been given a platform now to um, give his cricket opinions. He's on Breakfast Radio now in Sydney. Um, so you're going to be seeing a lot of quotes coming from the ex-skipper. Uh, mm. the, the recent one yesterday was he is now calling for Pat Cummins to be made skipper, not just in, in the test format when Payne goes, but he thinks he should take over from Aaron Finch later this year and do all three formats. There's so many things with that. You know, he's a fast bowler. Can mm. someone actually f- be captain of all three formats? Is it actually physically and emotionally possible? Where do you stand on that? Uh well, I mean, there are plenty of people, of course, already taking Steve Smith's measurements for his new captain's blazer. But in fact, um, you know, Cummins is the designated vice captain. And if I imagine if Tim Payne was indisposed, Cummins would be the captain. Uh, the question would be whether he could hold down that position more permanently. Now, the argument, of course, has always been that um, it might on occasions be necessary to rest him given his bowling load. So you couldn't maybe guarantee that he would be able physically to play in every test match. But um, but I think that the traditional argument, the one that you air there about this idea of, you know, it's fast bowling is so all-consuming that you can't achieve the level of sort of intellectual detachment necessary to uh, to, to bowl and to, and to captain – I think that was formed in a different era when uh, when the captain was had to be all things to all men you know he was kind of the captain the coach and the um, and the presiding genius <laughs> yeah, these the days so much so much of the effort of leadership is sunk in the uh, in the back room in the, in the coaching staff in a way the captain is the man who is there to implement a preordained plan and uh, the rest of the the job of the captain is the uh, is the stuff that is done off the field in a pastoral capacity, 
And being a fast bowler doesn't impinge on uh, Pat Cummins doing that. If anything, he's he seems to me to be an extremely sensible and centred uh, and mature young man, probably the best educated of uh, yeah, absolutely. All members yeah. of the Australian dressing room. Mm. And in the way that he presents himself, I think he's a, he's always been a credit to, uh, to to Australian cricket and in that sense could be a very good figurehead for the game. Yeah, we've seen fast bowling captains in the past, Bob Willis, the late Bob Willis, Courtney Walsh. So it's been done. I'm not sure Cummins, though, could do all three formats because you do need to rest someone like Cummins from the mm-hmm. odd one-day series and the odd maybe T20 series. So I would think you might need to share it around a bit, but certainly um, he's in the frame. What You mentioned Steve Smith. I sense a deep desire within him to get the captaincy back. I know he's been publicly saying he's very cool about it, but I sense he wants it back. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there would be, you know, the, at the at the heart of every champion is a, is a desire to prove wrong those who've said you can't do it. Um, so you know, part of him would be determined to uh, and resolved to make amends and to uh, and to and to disprove uh, common assumptions. But I think that uh, I also think that certain reservations that I harboured about Smith from the very earliest days of his captaincy haven't really been resolved. It's not like he's getting any less eccentric. It's not like he's loving batting any less. <laughs> uh, it's not like. He, it's not like he's any less the uh, quintessential batting virtuoso that we uh, that, that we know so well. Uh, so, I, I, in some respects, I um, I understand where he's coming from, but it may not be the best outcome either for him or for Australia. Just change, changing tack, Gideon. Uh, my my take is that. Um, with the criticism that was levied at the Cricket Australia over the last couple of years with the MOU and various other things, well, mm. well-founded well criticism, they've emerged from that. I sort of feel fairly comfortable that they're doing a good job in managing the game and will do so for the next few years. What's your take on how Cricket Australia are going? Well, I mean, a lot of the um, understanding or assessment of Cricket Australia is through the prism of the fortunes of the national team. You know, in general, if if Australia is winning, if Australia is doing well, if the team is um, enjoying public esteem, then brilliant administration is the myth glimpsed in the aftermath of that, Mm. to to paraphrase Steve Archibald's line about team spirit. Uh, So... Reservations emerge at times when the, the when the cricket team's record becomes questionable, when there are maybe controversies surrounding the behaviour of the side, when there are maybe reservations expressed in public about the team's deportment, and that's begin that's when people begin to look for, for culprits to, uh, to to finger. Sure. So uh, so you know, in some ways, the administrators need the players far more than than, than the other way around. Uh, so it was one of the ironies of the uh, of, of the players' dispute was that Cricket Australia seemed determined to undermine their best assets yeah. and the best advertisement that they uh, that they've got for them doing a good job. Uh, I think that you know they've they've had a good summer this year. It's probably as good a summer as they could possibly have had. You know, Australia's won everything in sight. Um, certain characters have emerged that. 
have endeared themselves to, uh, to to the cricket public. I think that the the controversies this year about player discipline uh, did invite some some criticism. I didn't think that Cricket Australia handled them particularly well. Mm. Uh, they are quite sensitive when they when they're criticised. They can they can be quite. Um, uh, belligerent Absolutely. when they feel as though they're um, yes, when they feel as though uh, aspersions are being cast on their um, on their good offices. Uh, but do, do you, you know, think those they, things passed. Those things passed as things tend to do in the natural course of a, of a media cycle. So to CA's general reputation probably didn't do too much harm. No, but do you think the latest TV deal? has gone well. It's been a big change to the landscape. We're now two years in. I don't know if, if it's actually contributing to the health of the game one way or another. An interesting question. Um, well, obviously, neither Ch- Channel 7 nor Fox Sports would regard themselves as being in great financial shape at the uh, at the end of that process. I mean, it's not entirely the... Uh, the, the uh, the cause is not entirely the uh, the, the handsome money that uh, that they paid to uh, to Cricket Australia, but they have um, found that it is quite difficult to broadcast successfully in a duopoly market. Um, it, competition is a great thing, except when it prevents you from uh, from guaranteeing kind of exclusivity. Uh, so Channel Seven's in dire financial straits at the moment. I don't think Fox has managed to uh, stave off that uh, summer churn that they suffer from their uh, from their uh, the people who've signed up to uh, to Fox Football in the uh, in the various states. So it definitely hasn't been a barn burner as as far as they're concerned. And I think one of the reasons why Cricket Australia was so determined to extract top dollar from the last right cycle is because the future of broadcasting itself is is so uncertain. Mm, yeah. There's no guarantee that they would get a king's ransom the next time round. Yep. So, so they absolutely pulled out all stops and tried to maximise the amount of content they were generating and the amount of dollars they were able to extract. Yeah. yeah, it just seems like splitting the coverage and taking some of the cricket away from free-to-air has dissipated some of the sort of casual fans interest i think it had a, a, a pronounced effect at the start of the season when there was international cricket being played but you couldn't see it for the first time on free to air television and it did take some time for it to sink in that the australian cricket team was out there competing and competing successfully which is ironic yeah we love a winning team mm. what about except uh, when we can't see it yeah <laughs> yeah um we obviously have this the january tour to india which I think Cricket Australia, basically everyone is wishing didn't have to have occurred. Um, is there anything Australia can do to get a better relationship with the BCCI or are we always going to be such a small, uh, so small in comparison to them that we'll basically have to do whatever they say going forwards? It was certainly pretty salutary for, for CA. Um, certainly reminded them of, uh, of, of where they stand in the, in the picking order, the way in which they were not only dealt with um, in that ODI series, but in their subsequent meetings with the, with the BCCI. I think they went over with the expectation that they would be meeting directly with the BCCI. In fact, they turned out to be just one of the group of courtiers going to pay homage. Oh, wow. Uh, things have changed at the BCCI significantly since October when when the new board was elected and new office holders were installed. Uh, 
we've seen the uh, the expiration of the uh, the committee of administrators that have been holding uh, the game uh, in temporary hands after the um, after the findings of the of the Loader Commission. That the reformist zeal that possessed the uh, the Supreme Court in India seems to have dissipated, and the old guard and members of the new guard have have been installed at the BCCI, and uh, they're not about winning friends, they're rather about influencing people. Mm, that's disappointing. Um, now, Gideon, we're going to let you go now. I know you want to have dinner and relax probably, but um, Paul is a massive history buff when it comes to cricket. Sure. So I said to him before we called, I said, you can ask Gideon some finicky um, <laughs> oh, history question. It's not, a, it's not a quiz question. It's just something okay. he wants to ask you. Um, okay. And you're the only probably person qualified in the country to answer it. The only person nerdish enough. Okay. That's right. Well, one of the ones that's always puzzled me is uh, why is it – you go back to 1927 was the last summer that England at home, with the exception of the wars and, and when the tours are cancelled by apartheid, that was the last summer they didn't have international test cricket at home. Mm. Australia, as recently as 71-72, had a summer where there was just Sheffield Shield. Why did it take us almost half a century to get regular international cricket here? Well, of course, in 1971-72, we were scheduled to have South Africa. Oh, sorry, yeah. And they didn't come and the rest of the world came instead. But you're right in the sense that in 1969-70, the Australian team was away for the whole summer. Yes. Touring, um, touring India and South Africa. So there was only Sheffield Shield cricket on in Australia. Uh, why did it take so long? Because basically financial reasons. I think that only the Ashes was regarded as particularly bankable. Really, Australian cricket has led a, up until the advent of Kerry Packer only ever uh, looked to generate enough money to keep going. Right. It, it, it wasn't about putting money aside for strategic purposes. Uh, the, the purpose of the game was to generate enough money to guarantee the continuance of the game and no more than that. Uh, and providing that the game did enough to do that, then there was no need to schedule any more international cricket. And, of course, up until Kerry Packer, there was really no big money for television rights. Mm. Uh, so there weren't big paydays to, uh, to, to underwrite the uh, teams that weren't coming here and, and couldn't necessarily wash their own face financially. To me, the remarkable, the most remarkable uh, hiatus is the one between the 1960-61 series between Australia and the West Indies now, which we are told kind of revolutionised Australian cricket and made Australians fall back in love with the game, we didn't have the West Indies back here until 1968-9, despite the fact that, you know, that we were told this team was hugely popular. <laughs> it's astonishing, yeah. It is astonishing. We did the same thing with India, not that we recognised how big they were going to be, but we had India in, what, 91-2 and not again until 99-2000. Um, well, that's right, yeah. Last one, just quickly. A friend the other day said to me, what's the best series Australia's ever won? I said 1936-37. What are your thoughts on that? Good. That's a good series, and it is unique. Ah. You're right. Uh, to come back from 2-0 down uh, to win under those circumstances after being absolutely bossed in those, uh, in those first two test matches. Uh, yeah, that is an outstanding series. But I would, uh, I would say I would advance maybe 1902. Yeah, um, I think that uh, I despite that. the fact that, I mean, you lose one test match in 1902, of course, because the Lord's Test match is virtually washed of out. Of course. But for Australia to be bowled out in the first test match for 36 
and then to come back and win the rubber, uh, two absolutely deathless test matches at uh, at, at Sheffield and at, uh, at Old Trafford, and then for England to come back and to win through Jessup's great innings in the in the last test match of the series, uh, and the whole tour, of course, which is remarkable for uh, Victor, for Trumper. Victor Trumper's. 2,570 runs at 48.49 with 1,100s. That's a virtuoso batting performance and a revolutionary batting performance because it's the first – he's the first Australian batsman who is recognised as being as beautiful, uh, as elegant, uh, as uh, distinguished as comparable English players. You know, he kind of changes the whole paradigm of Australian batsmanship, which before then – had been largely about kind of uh, pragmatic, uh, get the job done, kind of do a sell your wicket dearly, but rather unimaginative um, and rather unadventurous batting. So you can argue that I think that 1902 is both both a a fantastic series in its own right and the invention of of a whole new way of Australian cricket in English eyes. And that was the series that he got the 100 before lunch on the first day. Indeed, which, so he did. Yeah, which would have been worth having television cameras around for. <laughs> exactly. Well, Gideon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You've made me very happy, but I think you've made Paul <laughs> extremely happy <laughs> okay. with that discussion. Thank you so much. Um, take care, and hopefully we'll catch you around a cricket ground All soon. Right. Thanks, Gideon. No problem. Thanks a lot, Paul. Cheers, Minas. Bye. Bye-bye. Great stuff as always from Gideon Hay, columnist for the Australian newspaper. You happy with the history deep dive? Yeah, I'm very happy. I can't believe I that 71-72, of course, that was the series that we had um, the, the rest of the world here. I should have said 69-70, um, which was the, the series, the last one before that. So uh, a, bit, a bit embarrassing there. And but... when Gideon said 1902 was his favourite series, yeah, you I was were... like, of course. I mean, how could anyone go past it? You were nodding along like like a goose because you've never heard about any of it. No, who's <laughs> Victor Trumper again? <laughs> All right, so uh, before Gideon rang, uh, we were going through the Women's World Cup. So let's jump straight back into it. Uh, the format's been all over the place tonight because Gideon's been desperate to come on for ages. <laughs> um, so I just could, had to take the call. Uh, but uh, we were talking about the fact that there's no reserve day for the World Cup semi-finals this Thursday. Both games in Sydney. Yep. We saw with the Big Bash final that we don't need a lot of sunshine or a break in the rain to get a game. But I still think for World Cup semi-finals, you should have a reserve day. Absolutely. Especially given that it's just so easy. There's nothing on on Friday. Just have the reserve day. The game, the final isn't on until Sunday. Now, looking at the forecast right now, I think that the first game on the Thursday, the first semi-final, looks more problematic than the second one. That I think all things being equal, that we, we, we should get a result in the second game, but maybe not in the first. But let's just imagine that it turns out a little, a little bit worse than that and both games get rained off. The organisers are going to look absolutely stupid that... Nothing is done on Friday when they, mm. they could have easily had these games. I don't understand why. I mean, yeah, it must cost a bit. You've got to hire the ground. You've got to have contingency plans and blah, blah, blah. But still, um, for the semifinals of the World Cup, it should have been in action. It should have been in place. If you want fans to take women's cricket seriously and T20 cricket seriously, especially these World Cups, then you need to take the time to sort of have these reserve days built into it so it feels legitimate. Yeah, definitely. Now, that's the semi-finals. Hopefully Australia get a chance. Uh, the last show we sort of 
Jaleesa and I were saying we didn't think the MCG would be full for the final if Australia wasn't there. Well, they've already sold over 50,000 tickets. Yeah, which is great, and that's um, that's an ICC announcement as well. So that's not that's not the kind of Cricket Australia the MCG rounding it up or anything. I think that's a pretty robust number of tickets sold. Um, I, so I, I said I thought we'd still get eighty thousand even if Australia weren't there. That would sort of indicate that we're on track to at least sixty five, seventy thousand. Um, who knows whether people are already starting to be reluctant to travel because of the coronavirus and and things like that. I mean, that's something that we we can talk about that. All sport and society at this point, it's, it's anyone's guessing game as to what's going to occur. But hopefully Australia make it and hopefully they get their um, their record crowd, which they've been so eager for. They are talking about uh, postponing uh, sort of group gatherings around the world in various countries, which obviously would affect sporting events. All right, we're going to take our first break on this episode of the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I just want to remind you, if you have a moment, go on to Twitter and Instagram and follow us at OzCricketPod. We're putting out behind-the-scenes videos from the recordings. Um, you can find us on Facebook as the Australian Cricket Podcast. You can find us on TikTok as Cricket Unfiltered. Um, it's going gangbusters on TikTok. TikTok. TikTok is a different thing altogether. I'm working on a new video. Menas doesn't know about it yet. I think it could be really good, or um, <laughs> it might end up getting about seven views. Got but... Paul Spielberg over here. Oh, it's, it's a good one. <laughs> All right, so uh, coming up after the break, we've got the cricket headlines, and you'll first hear from the Australian vice captain Alex Carey. We had a quick chat after the game. Um, we knew the areas that we weren't good enough at. Um, to their credit, they played really well. Uh, we, we started well with the ball, but that partnership um, with Miller and Claston was, um, you know, one that, that sort of set up that game. So, yeah, we're, we're pretty honest in the, in the rooms after, and, um, and Finchie's, you know, he's, he doesn't like to dwell too long on results like that. Welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. You're with Menas and Paul. That was Alex Carey after Australia got hammered by South Africa in the first one-day international. And let's get straight in to the cricket headlines brought to you by Piccolo Podcasts. Paul, so Australia hammered in the first ODI against South Africa. A strange one. Mm. Australia reduced South Africa to three for 48. And you think from that position, they would probably win. South Africa rallied to seven for 291. And Australia were all out for 217 and never really threatened the South African total. I think my dad went to bed after the three wickets. The next day I was talking to him, he said, who won the cricket? And when I said South Africa, he couldn't believe it. When I added that, that actually thrashed us. Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was an amazing result. I think it was a good toss to win. As has been the case with every game so far in South Africa, the pitch has got slower and lower as the game's gone on. Um, and I just think that they, they batted pretty well. Uh, Verena on debut looks um, pretty good. Klassen is obviously a good player. You compare that, that was the bulk of their innings, and you compare that with Smith and Labuschagne. They just kind of didn't go on with the job, Smith and Labuschagne. But the thing that puzzled me is why we left Ashton Agar out of the side. That Ashton Agar was by far, I mean, Aaron Finch said he was the best player in the T20s, taking wickets galore, scoring some decent runs. And they brought in instead Darcy Short. And they're kind of saying, okay, Darcy Short, we're going to trial you as a middle order power hitter and sort of frontline leg spin, left arm leg spin bowler. I don't think that's what he is, but I'm happy for them to give him a go. I I think I agree. 
these games are all about let's getting it, let's get our combinations right for the World Cup of T20 cricket. I know this was a 50-over game, but I think that Ashton Agar has proved he is very much in our combinations. So he's only just kind of cemented his spot. I think he should be playing every game possible for his own sake, and not also just I'd rather win the games than lose. And the 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 ten overs of part-time bowling that he would have otherwise bowled, Mitch Marsh bowled five overs, and um, uh, short bowled five overs. Each of them went none for 35. So none for 70 off 10. The way Agar was bowling um, in the T20, he would have done better than that and quite possibly significantly better than that. So do you think Australia's top order is, is pretty good where you've got uh, Warner, Finch, Smith and Labuschagne as your top four, but then it's, it's the middle order that they haven't got quite right yet. And obviously Glenn Maxwell's out with an injury, so you take him out, that's a big blow. But then is Mitch Marsh the right middle-order option? I'm no. not sure Darcy Short is the right middle-order option because I think he struggles to start against spin. Yeah. I think he's okay at the top of the order. And even then you see them bring on spinners early on to him in the IPL and other T20 competitions because they know he's got a weakness. So I'm not sure Short's the right player for the middle-order. I don't mind Mitch Marsh, Mitch Marsh, but I know you're not a fan. I wouldn't say I'm not a fan. I would say that it just seems as though every chance they get, they put Mitch Marsh back in the side on the basis of his reputation that when he looks good, he does look good. I just don't think he's done enough. His record at international level, all formats considered, is pretty poor. And I think 50 over cricket's probably his best format, even record-wise, though. Yeah, uh, yeah, true. He's got two hundreds, but I suppose yeah. And, and by that logic, you'd say okay. Therefore, he's got his earned his spot in the fifty over side. But we're sort of looking at this, as I said, through the context of the T Twenty World Cup. And I just honestly think, if you said to any opposition captain, Australia, you're playing them in a crucial World Cup game. Australia's you know four or five out in, after twelve overs. Who do you want walking out to the middle? They'd say Mitch Marsh. We'd be very mm-hmm. happy to have Mitch Marsh walking. Now, from time to time, he will succeed because he is a good player. But uh, he does need to take uh, a lot of time to get in. Um, his bowling was not so good in this game either. So, yeah, I think that um, Maxwell coming back, as everyone has been saying, makes a massive difference. Ashton Turner, if he could get back into form, you know, if he, the Ashton Turner of a year ago would slot straight in beautifully into the middle order. And then you could sort of have a bit of a juggling act if, if Labuschagne needs to slide down, then, then, then so be it. I'm not so convinced anymore that Smith does need to slide down because I think when he can score almost as quickly as anyone when he's going. I think there is some value in having a stable top three that doesn't really move in 50-over format. I think it's different to the 20-over format. In 50-over cricket, you can have someone like Smith sort of not drop anchor but to uh, bat through the innings and make a runner ball 100. Uh, Matthew Wade is didn't play in that game. Mm. But he's probably someone that they could look at bringing in the middle order who's a little bit more flexible with where they can bat and how they can bat. I'm convinced that Wade will show it at top at the domestic form at international level. The gap between domestic and international level, I think, is often overstated. If you can score the runs that he scored in the Big Bash, you can do it at international T20 cricket. And, you know, he got two centuries in the Ashes. He's shown flashes at, at the top level. I think they've got to keep on giving him the opportunity because he's demonstrated that he's too good a player to be left out, in my opinion. Now, as always, Paul, you found a hole in the cricket rules. Uh, incredible stuff. I mean, you'd think the, 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 the thought of everything, the rule makers, but what happened? There was an LBW to Marsh, and it, the, well, you explain. 
Firstly, I can't take credit for this. It was, I um, can't remember where I heard it, but it was certainly not I that, I didn't think of this, but I'll... Um, wasn't another cricket podcast, was it? No, no, no I can't remember. My, my memory's gone. Okay. Uh, <laughs> if it was, it would have been trouble in this podcast. <laughs> anyway, so Marsh gets given out LBW and he challenges it. Incidentally, the ball ricocheted off his pad down to fine leg. So had he been given not out, it would have been an easy leg bye. On review, missing leg stump, so he's reinstated, but they can't... You've given the leg by because as soon as the finger goes up, that's it. It's kind of a dead ball from there on in. So if you had a situation where it was the last ball of the, um, you know, the World Cup final, and a team is batting in their one run off making it a super over, given out LBW, you almost don't need to challenge because uh, even if the challenge is um, proven successful, it's still going to be a dot ball. It doesn't count as a so run. you know maybe you could, we can just accept that it's one of these things that, that that's the way it is or. Maybe they should bowl it again. Um, I don't know. That sounds strange. Or maybe, as as you said to me um, off air, that they should just um, let the ball play out. Yeah, but that, and then the umpire makes the decision. Yeah, that that's in theory sounds good. I think in practice it might just be weird. Like the, I think it would be yeah. weird. Yeah. So I don't know what the answer is there. Anyone got a suggestion? Then um, email us at auscricketpod. That's a u s cricketpod at gmail dot com with any uh, help on that rule. And CC Lords in because they make the rules of cricket. <laughs> um, Australia take on South Africa in the second ODI starting pretty soon, and uh, we'll wrap all that up in the next podcast. The current men's test rankings make for good reading for Australian fans. India, we're catching you, buddy. Uh, India have 116 points in the men's test rankings. New Zealand is second on 110, and Australia are breathing down both of those teams' necks on 108. If Australia wins 2-0 in Bangladesh, wins against India 4-0 over summer, we'll be almost at the top. I think so. What I like about this, is, uh, I love these sorts of quirks, that um, – Australia, since the last rankings have been released, have dropped one point. So they were on 109, and New Zealand have gone up two. So Australia were ahead of New Zealand. Then Australia's done nothing wrong. <laughs> they thrashed New Zealand. Australia's been minding their own business in South Africa. But New Zealand, New Zealand have overtaken them and, 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 and gone above them. And I just think that sometimes these things happen. Um, it doesn't shake my faith in the fact that the ratings are re- reasonably good. So, yeah... Um, I can't wait for next year. So Uh, India just lost to New Zealand 2-0 in the Test Series. Surely that's a a pointer that they're going to struggle here next summer. I mean, I think think they're going to struggle here next summer anyway. I I don't think that that's necessarily a pointer to that because conditions in New Zealand are... Different, massively yeah. different to what they are in Australia. That um, we should make green wickets, though. What would have been interesting is if instead of India over there for these two Test matches, had it been Australia over there, uh, I would have been really fascinated to see how Australia, after having belted New Zealand here, oh, I think New Zealand might have beaten us. Yeah, uh, maybe we're not giving Australia credit or the the credit they deserve for absolutely smashing New Zealand when they were here because we dismantled them. Not a good time for Virat Kohli. He seemed to lose his rag a bit. Um, allegations he told someone in the crowd to shut the F up. He was also accused of fake calling, which I wasn't too um, – I wasn't really in the umpire's camp there. Apparently, Coley screamed at a fielder too, and the umpire thought that was fake calling. I thought it was more Coley saying to the fielder, hurry up, they could take two. I don't understand this uh, – I wouldn't call it an obsession, but the whole thing about fake fielding and now fake calling – 
Uh, fake fielding, the, the rule that they've brought in to prevent that, that's the classic rule to stop something that wasn't happening. Like, <laughs> no one was like, oh, fake fielding, it's the bane of my Manus existence. Manus Labuschagne is the first player to ever get pinged for fake yeah. fielding but or what's, fake throw. You know, what, what's, what's wrong? I mean, it happens once every thousand years, and it's not that big a deal. Uh, so, yeah, fake calling, um, yeah, bewildering. But yeah, interesting. I wonder what the sort of moral problem with fake fielding is, because it seems to me there's, it's harmless. What it would do is, retrospectively, Rod Marsh would have had to cancel one of his anecdotes from his um, book that he wrote in the early 1980s where he had this classic situation where... Gideon Hayback. <laughs> where they had a, um, they'd all planned it out where the bowl was going to bowl, a spin bowl was going to bowl a fast one down leg side and Rod Marsh was going to dive across and catch it but pretend that he hadn't and then scream at fine leg, chase it, we don't want any buys, only for the batsman to then so oh, okay, and start running and then Rod Marsh to stump him. And he wouldn't be able to do that because that would kind of be fake fielding. So I think it would definitely be fake fielding. <laughs> I don't think there's any doubt on that. Uh, so India coming next summer, look out Virat Kohli. I think Australia is going to absolutely hammer the Indians. The Sheffield <laughs> Shield, Paul and I... And there'll, there'll be a lot of sad listeners now. Our commentary for the summer is over. All the New South Wales Sheffield Shield home games are finished. But we've done a great job because <laughs> we, we basically were there for, well, five or four of the six wins. Uh, so New South Wales are top of the table, 49.76 points, looking like they're going to host the Sheffield Shield final. would take a pretty miraculous set of bonus points for Queensland to knock them off. But something struck me because on the final afternoon of all three uh, Sheffield Shield matches that were taking place last week, they all went into the last afternoon yep. with absolutely thrilling finishes set up, all run chases, and um, it, it was just set up for three great matches. And it made me consider that I don't think the Sheffield Shield is covered enough. Mm. When you think about all the things available for people to watch things, I feel like Sheffield Shield could be put out there in different ways. I agree, and I mean, I, I've probably bored you off here about this before, but um, that I think a really well put together highlights package show would be ideal for, say, Fox Cricket or even for Channel Seven. Now, people say, "Oh, well, you know, they've got better things to show," but it, it, it's a, it's a way of advertising cricket. It's a way of getting p- the public familiar with the next um, generation of stars. And as you said, it was compelling stuff. If they had put a half-hour highlights package together, featured a few of the people that succeeded, you know, Joel Paris back from injury, getting wickets and runs, Joe Burns, will he be chosen for Bangladesh or not? Well, he's gone out and got 135. And Andrew Mensel calling Daniel Hughes's back-to-back exactly. centuries. Exactly. Half hour of well-selected highlights and commentary, and and assuming that the viewer knows nothing as well, so bringing them into every game. Mm. That's what the English Premier League does so well. Uh, you can know nothing about it, and then you watch eight minutes of highlights of a certain match and find that you're captivated by it. Uh, I think that'd be a fantastic addition to um, to television, and they've got it all on the streams. It would just be a question of cutting it together and having someone put a bit of a narrative arc over it. Um, it would be great, and also maybe throwing out. Um, the Shield to maybe streaming services so people could stream it through different services. Um, also, you say about getting to know the next generation would also be good for the Big Bash because when the Big Bash comes along, you yep. go, oh, I've seen this guy playing. and you know, So, yeah, I think it's something they should do. We've been lucky enough um, to watch a lot of the Shield over the last two years and uh, it is a dynamic, competitive competition which is a much higher standard than county cricket and I, I think it, there could be more done with it as, um, you know, these sort of streaming platforms evolve. I'll add one rider to that, provided the pitches are competitive. The games we've seen when the pitches have been flat 
have been rubbish. And you'd have to be... Um, but that's any cricket, really. Yeah, yeah, of course. But, I mean, it just seems that um, the, the shield comes alive when the, when the pitches are good. Sometimes a test match, if the pitch is and you got the fifth day not well. so good, it's still international. It really sort of it matters as the history. I know there's the history of the Shield, but the Shield, more so than anything else, needs good pitches. The last two pitches we've seen in Sydney, one at SCG and one at Bankstown, have been superb. All right, that's it for the cricket headlines this week, brought to you by Piccolo Podcast. We're going to take our final break for this episode. Then we'll be back with Can't Let It Go Through to the Keeper. But I want to ask you, if you've got a moment, go on and rate and review the podcast on whatever app you listen to the show on. And if you're listening in America, go on and leave a five-star review because there's been a swathe of one-star reviews that have been attacking me on a personal level. So we need to write that wrong. And not because of the show. It's been totally separate. Totally separate. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. But uh, I got doxxed last week. So, yeah, Cricket Unfiltered American fans rally behind the show. Leave an iTunes review. All right, we're going to take a break. Then we'll come back with Can't Let It Go. And you'll hear Pat Cummins. And this is nice for me because I had Pat Cummins on the show last summer and we did a a long-form interview. Lovely guy. But he did have a problem, and his problem was that his girlfriend thought he wasn't romantic enough. But things have changed. He's engaged. And, look, you're going to hear this audio. I think it will cheer a lot of the ladies up out there. Yeah, engagement went well. Um, yeah, I was home for a few weeks. I thought I'd better sneak that in before I'm off for another six months. Um, but, yeah, it was great. It was uh, took, took Becky totally by surprise. So pretty chuffed with myself on that one. I try to get a bit of advice from just about everyone in the teams, either engage or marriage, or, or it's on the horizon. So there's a, there's a few good mentors in the side that helped me through. But no, I was actually fine. I was um, I thought I would get a bit nervous, but I was I was pretty chilled. Welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered. Paul here, Manners. We've got Can't Let It Go to finish it off. And good to hear Pat Cummins upped his romantic game. I think when he was with me, he said his idea of a romantic date was at the pub watching the cricket, which I'm all up for but I've been married 20 years, so I can get away with it. Uh, So, Paul, what's the one bit of cricket news that you just can't let go of this week? You just can't leave this one for the keeper. So, it happened during the the cricket, the 50-over Cricket World Cup for the men earlier in the year, and it's happened again on this tour of South Africa. Unless sombre tone. (laughs) Unless my ears are failing me, which is possible, I think that the... The version of the Australian national anthem that is being used in all of these big events has two incorrect lyrics. So they're minor things, but where we say we've golden soil and wealth for toil, I believe they're saying with golden soil and wealth for toil. And then in the chorus, in joyful strains, then let us sing. I think he's saying in joyful strains and let us sing. I put this out on Twitter during the World Cup, and most of the replies were people. <laughs> most of the replies were people saying. I thought those were the lyrics. Like that's, um, you know, so that leads us to the point. The lyrics were written on a on a bus or like it must have been a, a coach and horses in eighteen seventy nine. I think for lyrics of that age, they're not actually that bad. But they, in my opinion, the national anthem. It's time for a new one, and that's because the lyrics are old fashioned. They make very little sense. Girt by sea, we are young, which is insulting to Indigenous Australians who've been here for at least sixty thousand years. Plus the actual tune itself. It's okay. If it's sung brilliantly, it can be quite stirring. But in the last few days, when the Australian National Anthem precedes the South African one, which happens to be my favourite, there's just no comparison. I'd, 
uh, you know, it's it's almost embarrassing hearing our song and then theirs, which is magnificent. So uh, I I think that at least get the words right if we are going to use this one. I know it's not major, but what other country would tolerate that? Yeah, it's not the Americans got you know the words wrong. They'd be up in arms about picking. it. I, I, yeah, I'm not up for those two words, but I do see a problem with the um, anthem. So my can't let it go is on the same theme. Um, our good friend Robert Craddock, who part of this podcast for the last couple of years was on the radio saying how he thinks the anthem should be changed to the I Am Australian song by The Seekers and it was recently covered by Casey, I don't even know her last name, uh, but I'm not up with pop music, but uh, you know, I Am Australian by The Seekers is a better song than the current anthem, but what I, what I can't let go of is what Crash said, it's not the anthem issue which I'm passionate about, but Crash made the point that you you can't control what the heart feels. And I would find that I don't think many people are moved by Advance Australia Fair. I think it's kind of gone past the Nationals. We've got the National Psyche's gone past that song and we need a song that is going to move people now. Yep, I completely agree. I think that uh, I Am Australian is a fantastic song. I think it, it covers off the Indigenous heritage. It covers off... Uh, the, the the multiculturalism multiculturalism mm. of the country uh, and it's stirring and it, it is um apart from anything else the music even if you change the lyrics to just someone counting one two three four five it, it would still be a stirring song because the actual underlying tune is excellent and so, then you throw in the lyrics and I think it's a powerful song and I, I'd be happy for it to be our national anthem so my checklist is become a republic new flag new anthem forge our own identity. I agree with all of that. So we've got very political to end this episode of Cricket Unfiltered. Send all your emails to pauldannett at gmail.com. I thought we should replace the union. <laughs> we should replace the union, Jack, with a picture of Ian Chappell's looking frowning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, well, listeners, on that happy note, I think we should leave. Um, thank you so much for downloading the podcast. Huge week of cricket, the World Cup final, the Shields kicking off, Australia's in South Africa. Lot to watch. Um, hopefully, Jaleesa Apps will be back next week. She was really sick for tonight's episode, so couldn't come. Best wishes, Jaleesa. Yeah, best wishes, Jaleesa. Thanks to Gideon Hay for ringing in. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back uh, next week with another podcast. See ya. <laughs>